Well, we take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing in our sermon series through this great book of the Bible. And we've, a couple weeks ago, we hit the image of God and we decided to go ahead and slow down a little bit as we think through what it would, what are some of the practical implications of being made in God's image. And so last week, we specifically looked at um, homosexuality and transgenderism. Um, If you weren't here for that sermon, it is on the website, so you can go on there and you can listen to it if you um, would like to. Um, It was 61 minutes long, um, and nobody complained about it, so guess how long today's is going to (laughs) be? But one of the... Well, actually, let me ask you this before we begin our church's theme for this year. Who must increase? And who must decrease? Let's do that again. Who must increase? Christ. Who must decrease? Me. One of the curiosities I've had as I've studied for the sermon is specifically in regard to worldviews. How you and I view the world, because every day you wake up, your feet hit the floor, and your eyes open, you see the world in a certain way. And it's important to know how your worldview has shaped, or it's important to let the proper influences influence the way that you view the world, how we think through things, what our foundation is for thinking about the cultural issues of our day. And I mentioned an important verse that plays into this subject a little bit last week, and that's Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, where Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And so there's kind of a positive and a negative to that, right? That Paul is saying to us, guys, I don't want you to be taken captive by anything but the way of Jesus. So when it comes to philosophies, when it comes to the, world, the rudiments of the world, human traditions, the elemental spirits of the world, you've got to be wise. You've got to be able to, as John says, test the spirits. You've got to be able to figure out what is true and what is wrong. What is accurate, what is according to the way of Jesus, and what is according to worldly philosophy. And I would also add to that, that you have got to have the ability to say, this is trash and this is good. You've got to be able to do that. You've got to have that sort of wisdom to be able to walk through these things. It's imperative that the Christian does not take the way that he or she views the world from the world, but that the way we view the world finds its foundation within the Bible. And so as we grow as Christians, that we would not be trying to marry a a Christian worldview to a secular worldview, but that over time, and as we continue steadfastly in the Word, and as we devote ourselves to the Word of God, that God's Word is what is going to actively produce the worldview that we have. That it would get more and more biblical. I mean, is that not why we emphasize reading the Bible? That every day you would wake up, and that it wouldn't be your feelings that push the way you view the world. It wouldn't be the newspaper that pushes the way you view the world. But that you would open God's Word and read it and view the world in light of it. So that God will wash us with this word and help us to see him and our world through biblical lenses. 
And so everything that we think about, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago with the image of God and the dominion of mandate, the creation of man, like we looked at last week with, with uh, variances of sexuality, with homosexuality, with something like transgenderism. Well, how are we going to view those things? It has got to be through the word of God. We have to ask ourselves, what does the Bible say? And so in our sermon series through the book of Genesis so far, what we've been trying to do is lay this foundation that is scriptural. And so we open to Genesis chapter 1, and our worldview begins with the first chapter of the Bible. In fact, our worldview really begins with the first verse in the first chapter of the Bible, doesn't it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And if you believe that first verse of the Bible, which I think that you should, if you believe those first few words, you need to understand that what you believe and why you believe it is going to be massively different than the world today. It's going to have long-reaching consequences if you believe that first verse of the Bible. Because what is there between the Bible and the secular view of our day are completely different foundations. There is a canyon of a difference between somebody who believes in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and in the beginning a big bang happened. You may be wondering in terms of secular humanism what that kind of word can mean, but it's really the the popular view of our day. When somebody says secular humanism, it's the popular way that the world is viewing itself. Listen to the way Brian Schwertley defines secular humanism. Secular humanism is the belief that man lives in a closed universe. There is no God who is transcendent above and beyond greater reality. The secular humanist presupposes that the Christian God does not and cannot exist, that everything which does exist is merely the product of matter plus time plus chance. The essence of secular humanism is that man is the measure of all things. Man, not God, is the determiner of reality, meaning, and ethics. And so their foundation is ultimately that there is no God. Right. So if you believe Genesis 1.1 is your foundation and is the way and your trajectory going to be different from somebody who adheres to secular humanism? And you'd have to say, absolutely. The perspective of the world being that man is the ter- determiner of reality... That is going to have severe consequences. A a massive difference in how Christians view the world and how secular humanists view the world. And because their foundations are so radically different, they often come to different conclusions on different subjects. The danger for the Christian, again, is when we try to bridge that canyon, trying to find the common ground, trying to synthesize the worldviews together, trying to find areas where, frankly, we can attempt to look respectable in the eyes of a Darwinian evolutionist or a secular humanist or a postmodernist of our day. And there are Christians who are desperately trying to do this. Trying to fit the Bible in with millions and billions of years of world and universe history. Succumbing to Adam and Eve not really being the first people that God created, but being representatives of all of the other people that were on the earth at that time. Or in Genesis chapter 6, when the flood happens, and it really wasn't a worldwide flood, it was a local flood. And trying to make it so that the worldviews can actually intersect, which when you look at Genesis for what it is and what it says, they simply cannot. It's this attempt to marry these worldviews, and it cannot happen. 
because the foundation is different. And frankly, the sooner that we realize this, the sooner we can get back to the Bible to study it for all it's worth, apply it in our lives, and build on it for the rest of our lives, knowing that our perspective is going to be different. I mean, is that not why, when you even consider something on more of a superficial level, in ways, between a a, a conservative and a liberal, you have both sides of this thing. And have you ever wondered why a conservative, they're fairly all in line on all of the same issues, right? On all these different issues, but kind of think the same way, generally. And a liberal will be the same way. Well, why is that? Because of worldview. It's because they share the same worldview that they come to the same conclusions, whether a conservative or whether a liberal. And so when we even consider the subject that's before us this morning, and we think about the subject that is often called race, what does the Bible have to say about race? And can we follow logically throughout the Bible how we should think about race? So with the Bible as our foundation and and as the building materials for how we think about race, Will we then think differently than those who do not have a Christian worldview? And so let's begin in our passage, our foundational passage, in Genesis chapter 1 this morning. And I'm going to read verses 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, And over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So most of what we have been thinking about and the applications we have been fleshing out have happened on the last half of the last workday of God. And we've been noticing over the last couple of weeks a couple of differences that we see within this. And what what this text shows us explicitly and implicitly. And a couple of things that we've been looking at are the distinctions that God is drawing within this passage. Some of these differences. As I mentioned the last couple of weeks, what does being made in the image of God mean for us? Well, ultimately, what did it not mean that we are not God? If you've been made in the image of God, it means that you are not God, and it means that you are not a mini-God, right? God didn't create you to be like the Titans or like a demigod of some sort, where you're calling all the shots, and you have sovereignty, and you have power. But God has created all of us, and what He then did was He stamped His image on us. A few years ago, Bethany bought me one of those, this is kind of dorky, but she bought me one of those wax seals, Uh, with the initial of my last name on it. Um, And so when I want to be really fancy, and maybe you'll get a letter from me sometime, and on it, it'll it'll have some wax with a stamp on it, right, with the letter D. Now, that formless, gooey substance 
is pressed with a seal, that letter D, and then it's mailed on, right? Now, that seal, that stamp, is not me. It reflects me. It symbolizes me. It reminds people, wow, Brandon's really dorky and he wax sealed this letter that he sent me, right? (laughs) But the seal is not me. And in the same way, you are not God, but God has stamped his image on you. But we are also distinguished from the animals. Now, you and I are not an animal. We are made of different stuff than animals. We looked at what Jesus had to say briefly, didn't we? When he said, are you not of much more value than the sparrows? There's a a distinction. There's a value difference between us and the animals. In fact, even the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. We're not all the same, and we can kind of tell, can't we? You can tell the difference between a human and a deer, but then you can tell the difference between a deer and a fish. And between a fish and a bird, there's different flesh there. And that's what Paul is getting at. We're not the same as animals. We're different. Paul understands there to be. And Genesis 1 displays for us the significant difference is that we have been made in the image of God. We have that stamp upon us that all of the other animals within the animal kingdom, that they do not have. But I want you to notice that while mankind is made in the image of God, distinct from God and distinct from animals, There is also one more distinction that God makes, or at least one more that he makes that we need to notice. And that is the difference between male and female. This is the only distinction between the humans that we are given. This is important to note. The difference between men and women. Both are made in the image of God, yet one is male and one is given. Or one is is female. And so you notice... That no distinction of so-called race is ever given. And as the rest of the Bible bears this out, that is because there is only one race. The human race. There's only one race. It's the human race. There are presently various shades of colors among this human race. There are various textures and eye colors and sizes and so on that human beings have. But all human beings belong to one race. Yet we recognize, obviously, that there are different shades, different eye colors within this room. Maine is a very, very white state. It just is. You can look at the percentages. It's a very white state. But there are many other different kinds out there. Different eye colors in our presence. Different hair colors. There are so many variables among us all, yet we are all part of the same race. Why? Because we're all descended from Adam and Eve. There are other views other, um, that used to be popular Darwinian views, such as what's called polygenesis, that believes that we came from different stock. And so if you believe in the survival of the fittest and those kinds of things, if you look at his book, The Survival of the Fittest, you look at uh, The Descent of Man, it follows, his logic follows, Darwin's logic follows, that, look, you might, you might have descended from gorillas. And they're not as smart as orangutans. But then orangutans aren't as smart as chimpanzees. And so there have been theories put out there that because people believe in evolution, well, and I'm serious, uh, this is all part of the way they, they have thought and structured things, is that um, those of African descent are from gorillas and they're not as smart. Orangutans... Asians have evolved from orangutans. They're a little smarter. But then white people are the smartest of all. 
and they have come from chimpanzees. This kind of stuff has been purported. It's a polygenesis mindset that we've all had all of these different kind of monkey ancestors. But what does the Bible say? How do we shape our worldview? We go back to Genesis 1 and say that that sort of thinking is lunatic. It is crazy. Notice what Moses refers to Eve as in Genesis chapter 3. He says, the man called his wife's name Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Mary is the mother of us all. Or, excuse Mary. Eve. Well, Mother Mary. You're in the wrong church. Um, <laughs> Eve is the mother of us all. She's the mother of all living. It all started with her. Cain and Abel were her sons. And then Seth. And she had daughters as well. We have all descended from Adam. We have all descended from Eve. There is not one person in the world of any shade of color that has descended from anybody but Adam. This is beautifully captured by C.S. Lewis in his famous book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where the four children enter into this world called Narnia, and when they get to Narnia, they are often referred to as a son of Adam or a daughter of Eve, demonstrating the fact they were human. But we are all sons of Adam. We are all daughters of Eve. Eve is the mother of all the living, which is why her name is Eve. The New Testament bears this out for us in the book of Acts. If you remember, the Apostle Paul is in the middle of a bunch of uh, people in, on the Areopagus in Athens in Greece. And he begins to talk about this altar that was designated to an unknown God. And if you remember, he's, he's fighting against all the influences of the day. And he's talking about this altar and how really the one that you're missing is the true and the living God. The one who has, was not made by human hands. The one who does not depend on anyone or anything for life. But that he himself is the one who gave breath to all of the creatures. We all live and move and have our being in the true and living God. And this is the God that those in Athens were missing. And then Paul says this about the God who created all humans. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. Could it get clearer? That He, God, He made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. And so are there different races? No. There is one human race. And so the language that we use, even the everyday language that we use in regard to race, gets very muddy. So you think about the discussion of what is called interracial marriage or interracial dating. There's no such thing as interracial marriage because we're all of the same race or interracial adoption. When a person adopts a a child of color, there's no such thing as interracial adoption. It, it, It doesn't it's not helpful It's not helpful to make that distinction. Different ethnicities, different cultures, different locations of origin, that's fine. But not a different race. The Bible recognizes that while there is one race, there are various distinctions that separate us. For instance, consider that a couple of times in the book of Revelation, one of which was already read, that distinctions between people are noted. Every tribe and language and people, and nation. You notice that that's something that is going to be understood for all of eternity. That, that th- these things are going to be seen forever. And so we're all from the same race. We all have different tribal or national 
backgrounds. America is known for being the melting pot, right? You have all of these ethnicities and cultures brought together in this one land. And, and it was fun, if you remember as a kid, at least we did as a kid, we would talk to each other about what our background was. Right? My mother's last name was Bogoslowski, so you can imagine, I always knew I was kind of Polish, at least a little bit, right, with a last name like that. Or other kids had all different kinds of things within them. I grew up with, in Rhode Island with um, kids who were Korean and Cambodian and Haitian and Puerto Rican. Just the melting pot. It's just what it was. In the state of Rhode Island, there's a, there's a massive Italian-American population. And so while the Bible would deny that there are many races of people, it readily acknowledges that there are people from many different places and different tongues and many different tribes because that's the way that he made it. God is the one who established it this way. Take your Bible and turn to Genesis 10. Turn over a few chapters to Genesis 10. And we're going to get here together in this sermon series. I'm looking forward to it. But at, the, at this point in Genesis, the flood of Noah has already happened. God has promised that He would never flood the earth again. He promised that snow and cold and summer and winter and day and night would not cease as long as the earth remained. But then at the end of chapter 9, Noah dies. And chapter 10 lays, us, lays out for us the descendants of Noah. And why is that important? As you're reading through your Bibles this year, and you're read specifically through Genesis, you come to these genealogies, and it, it, can, it can be a drag. You're like, I'm just reading these names over and over and over. And you're like, I just read my Bible today, but I don't really feel like I got much out of it, right? But these are so important, in part, because God had just destroyed Everybody but Noah and his family. You have Noah and his wife, and you have his three sons and their wives, and everybody else is dead. There were eight people on the ark. God wiped everybody out. God is starting over with Noah. Noah is picturing for us. He's a new Adam, right? You have the first Adam with a perfect earth. He messes it up. You have another Adam in Noah with a newly formed, perfect, clean earth after the flood, and he, of course, messes it up. Again, but then chapter 10 shows us Noah's descendants. And look at the last verse in chapter 10 in verse 32. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they then have kids who have kids who have kids. And then there comes a time where these three sons, the nations of all of these sons, spread. But how does this happen? It happens in chapter 11 at the Tower of Babel. So you look at the first verse of chapter 11, and it says that the whole earth had the same language, the same words, and they were all together speaking the same language. And they came together to defy God. To immortalize themselves. They wanted to build a city and a tower that would reach to the heavens. And so the world that God had just wiped clean was now filled with sinners again. Look at verse 6 in chapter 11. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, 
Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. And so why right now are there people all over the globe? Why do they speak different languages? This is all God's doing. He didn't create different races, but he did create linguistic distinctions. And these people then coupled into all of their various tribes and tongues. They grew into nations. They began building culture. They had different music. They had different food. They had different ways of life. And the rest is quite literally history. That this is what God did. He spread them all over the globe. And so Genesis 10 and 11, this table of nations in chapter 10, and then the Tower of Babel in 11, is the spreading of all of the families of the earth through the entire world. But there's still a problem that has been nagging since Genesis 3, and that is sin. So despite all of these people that have spread all over the world, they speak different languages, they begin building their different cultures, you have sin. All of them are carrying their sin all over the planet. So God creates Adam, perfect world, he fails, sin ravages the world. God creates Noah, he perfectly cleans the world, Noah fails, sin begins again ravaging the world. And so the question for us is how are all of these families that have now spread all over the earth after the Tower of Babel, how are they going to be reconciled back to God? If God spread them, how is God going to bring them back together? How is he going to bring them back in? The answer in seed form is in Genesis 12. Look there. Look in Genesis 12 in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. Okay, so there, there is a specific, there's going to be a great nation, and we know that's going to be Israel, through Abraham, right? But keep going. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. Now listen. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So all of the families of the earth aside from Israel are going to somehow be blessed throughout the world where God spread them. So God pulls a man, Abram, out of one place that people have been dispersed. Abram is a descendant of Shem. And he basically says to him, I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you a blessing. And in you, every family of the earth is going to be blessed. Which is ultimately going to be done how? Well, that's in part the question of the rest of the Bible. How is God going to bless all of the families of the earth as a result of this promise that he made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12? All of this leads somewhere. All of the families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham because of the great descendant of Abram, Jesus Christ. Don't you realize that right now where we sit in Little Windsor, Maine is like 5,000 miles away from where all of this was happening. Yet our families have been blessed, have they not? Through whom? Through Christ. Paul says this in Galatians 3. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Are you a son or a daughter in faith? You're a child of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, that's us non-Jews, he would justify them by faith, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. And what was that gospel? In seed form message, what was that gospel? It was this. In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
And so then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So God takes Abraham. He works through Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews, Israel, almost exclusively, right? You read your Old Testament, it's like he's just with the Jews, with the Jews, with the Jews. God's working with the Jews the whole way through. They're obeying, they're disobeying, they're driven out of their land, they're brought back to the land. There's so much that's going on within those physical descendants for hundreds of years. He saves the people of Nineveh. He saves Nebuchadnezzar. He saves Rahab, but almost exclusively with the Jews. And then what happens? The Son of God comes to the earth. He takes on Jewish flesh. He's God with us. He's fully God and fully man. And Jesus fully and finally succeeds in everything. He obeys the Father perfectly. He lives perfectly. He dies perfectly. And then he bursts out of the grave on Easter morning. And what does he say? He doesn't say, stick close to home and form a theology group. He says, go into all of the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of the nations, right? So how are the nations of the earth blessed? They're blessed through the preaching of the gospel and God causing them to come to see and believe in Jesus, the Messiah. After Jesus ascends back into heaven, we see in Acts chapter 2, really a great reversal of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember this whole scene? You have all of these people, the text says, who were devout Jews and they're from every nation under heaven is what Acts chapter 2, 5 says. And so you have this diversity in nationality, yet they're Jewish. And they are all assembled together in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. Yet with what you know about Pentecost, what begins to happen? They all begin to hear one another in their own language. And so at the Tower of Babel, if you have your French speakers there, and your English speakers there, and your Spanish speakers there, and your German speakers there, what's being spoken is heard by all of them in their own language. And so what God confused in Genesis 11, what he began to spread and push away, he's now beginning to bring back together. It's a reversal of Babel. Where the language was once confused, the language is now being unified and united at Pentecost. They can all understand each other. God's bringing back into one a spiritual people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. And so the gospel is going forth to the nations. The nations are called to bow the knee to Jesus. And the book of Acts fleshes all of this out among the letters of the New Testament. Where men go out to the ends of the earth to tell the nations about Jesus. And so that's why you see Paul in all of his missionary journeys traveling all across Asia Minor and, and, and into Rome eventually, all over the place. That's why it's said that the disciple Thomas ends up going to India. These guys were going all over the place for the sake of Jesus so that they would bow the knee to this Lord who had died and been buried and risen again and ascended to be at the right hand of the Father. I wonder if Christians will be surprised to get to heaven one day. And see how many people of different ethnicities are all there. We, we tend to get a little more tribal than that, don't we? The Baptists don't think anybody else are going to be there. The Pentecostals don't think anybody else is going to be there. White people can tend to think that it's just going to be a bunch of white people. Maybe black people think the same. But how many people of different ethnic groups are going to be all in one place completely unified 
Or how about the first time you look at Jesus and he looks nothing like the pictures that you've seen your whole life? He's not a white guy with blue eyes and a nice Mediterranean jaw. Nice beard, no doubt. But everything else, everything else that you've seen doesn't resemble him. It's probably a stocky, dark-skinned, dark-haired, dark-eyed man. He doesn't look like Fabio. But the new heavens and the new earth are going to be filled with people of all different shades of color. He came and he took on flesh. He became of Jewish descent in order to fulfill the Old Testament promises. And he came to give up his life as a ransom for many. And who was included in that many? The Bible says in Matthew 1 that he would give his life, give it, save his people from their sins. And so the question is, who are his people? What do they look like? Who are they? Where, what time period do they live in? Where do they live? All of these kinds of questions. And this all gets gloriously displayed for us, not just in the New Testament, but the Old Testament pictures this beautifully for us. Last year, we went through the book of Daniel, didn't we? And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, it says this. I saw her in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so Daniel sees Jesus in this vision, ascended into glory. Jesus has given dominion over all of the kingdoms, all of the people, all nations, all languages, and they're all to bow the knee to King Jesus, right? So his dominion is going to be forever and ever. And so for Daniel, as somebody who's in Babylon, he's not in his homeland, and he's seeing this vision of all different kinds of people like that he would see in the land of Babylon. All of these different people are before God. They're before Christ. And you notice that it's not just one people. It's not just, hey, Daniel, don't worry. It's all going to work out. The Jews are going to get pulled out of the land and we're just going to all be in heaven forever and ever together by ourselves. All nations would be before the Son of Man. Consider Revelation 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Or consider just a couple chapters later in Revelation chapter 7. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne And before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So who were the people, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, that he would come and save his people from their sins? Who were the ones that he would save from their sins? It would be those from every tribe and tongue and nation. He would come and save a great multitude that no one can number. Number the stars of the heavens if you can, Abraham. Count the little pieces of sand on the seashore, and so shall your offspring be. And all the families of the world that would be blessed through Abraham, because Jesus came from Abraham, 
and all those people from all the families of the earth that are united to faith in Jesus will be with him for all of eternity. And so what do we do with all this? We are all one in Adam's blood as human beings. And we are one in Christ's blood as believers. In regard to being one in Adam's blood, one race of people, when we understand what the Bible says on this topic, it should absolutely convince us, and in terms of application in our lives, it should lead us to eschew any and all forms of racism. Racism is a vile misunderstanding of the Scriptures. Racism is a complete misapplication of what the Word of God has to say on the subject of race. If you see a person that is not your color and you immediately look down on them, and I was raised in this sort of living room racism, and I don't say this jokingly at all, taught by a friend, red and yellow, especially white, they are precious in his sight. It's terrible. It's terrible. And beyond that. And it has been widely accepted. And I think what's happening right now within Christianity is we're kind of getting to this point of everybody is so tired of being called a racist because every time you turn on the news, we're all racist. Everybody's racist. It's just constantly that we're actually getting desensitized to the fact that there are spots in which we have been and had racial tendencies. And for us, it cannot be. If we're going to understand what God's word says about race and we're going to apply it consistently and understanding that these are people who have been made in the image of God, how dare I think less? They're image bearers of God. They have the same stamp on them that I have. It would make sense if we were Darwinian. It would make sense if we thought we came from different sorts of monkeys and we believed in, in that sort of survival of the fittest where the smartest are the more advanced and we came from different things. But if we all believe that we all descended from Adam and Eve and we've all been stamped in the image of God, how could we be anything but appreciative and valuing the lives of those who are different in terms of color than us. Christians should lead the way with a strong voice declaring racism to be a heinous sin that Jesus had to die for. And this is part of where the discussion of worldviews has to come back into play. Because when you consistently apply the Christian worldview from the Bible, you will see that all men are created by God in the image of God and therefore worthy of dignity and respect. And so the child song should come into play for us and we should joyfully sing red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. We are all one in Adam's blood. All human beings have been made in the image of God. And so when it comes to race in Adam's blood, there isn't us in them. But when it comes to Jesus' blood, there is us in them. Because there are people who are in Jesus and there are people who have been outside or who are outside of Jesus. And so what do we do in response to that? 
Well, by the commission of God, we go with the gospel all over the world to all nations, telling people who desperately need to know him about him. In those two Revelation passages, again, you get that beautiful picture of what it will look like for all of eternity. People from every tribe and language and people and nation worshiping around the throne of God. And so we know that He who was many to save from, who has many to save from all over the world, we know that there will be reflected around this throne image bearers from every tribe and tongue and nation. And so we go to them. We have been commissioned to do this. The authority, he says, is given to me on heaven and earth. Now go. And we must go. We must tell the world what Jesus has done. That he has come to die for sinners. And that those who are united to him, regardless of ethnic distinction, those who are united to him in faith will be with him forever and be in the new heavens and the new earth with him forever, united around his throne, perfectly glorifying him for all of eternity. And so may God help us to repent and to believe ourselves if we haven't this morning, but help to help them and to preach the gospel to all nations everywhere. Let's pray.